The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the current episode of Data Transformers podcast. And today, Peggy and I are excited to introduce uh, um, an industry thought leader, consultant, advisor, author, speaker, and instructor on data and analytic strategy. And uh, I'm a big fan of Doug Laney. Doug is the Data and Analytics Innovation Fellow at West Monroe. He's the author of Infonomics. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Hi, Peggy. Welcome, Doug. So Doug, I thought we would start out first with your talking about your best-selling book, um, Infonomics. Um, you know, I think you, you really coined this term and in the industry. Uh, love to hear more about uh, how you came about to, to writing and to actually thinking about the concepts for this book. Yeah, so I think the book was inside me for a while. And you know, the, 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 but the backdrop on it was um, the concept of infonomics actually starts with a a pretty uh, very sad chapter in U.S. and global history, and that's the the 9/11 terror attacks. So I talk about that in in the book, and how while I was an analyst with with Gartner, um, the IT research and advisory firm, <clears throat> some clients started contacting us after 9/11, um, who had been in the in the twin towers, who had lost their data. Remember, this is you know 2001. It's uh, before a lot of companies. Um, had cloud, you know, had their data in the cloud or had offsite backups. So these these companies actually lost their data, right? They they didn't know who their customers were. They had lost their transaction data, their contracts, um, employee records, all of that. And so it became pretty uh, very much an existential event for the the businesses. So um, naturally, you know, who do you call when you suffer some kind of loss? Is you you call your insurance company and submit a claim. Well, the insurance company said, well, you know, sorry, we don't believe that data constitutes property therefore you know we're not going to honor or recognize your 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 payout on your uh your claims for the value of the the data you lost or the impact on the business and um that that, that was a came as a great surprise you know to me i'd always thought about data as an asset data as property and it never i never really gave it much of a much of a second thought um and then what the insurance companies did what the insurance uh standards body about a month after 9-11, they updated the commercial general liability policy standard template, which is used by all insurance companies to um, explicitly exclude data from PNC policies, hmm. you know, to add further <laughs> insult to injury. Um, and then the accounting profession followed suit a couple of years later and updated a key financial standard to uh, prohibit the capitalization of data on balance sheets or the recognition of data. Wow. So even if you wanted to record the value of your company's data on your balance sheet, you you now lo no longer can. So I kind of all this got got my attention and got me a little bit <laughs> got me a little bit riled up. Um, and I said, well, how are companies supposed to become more data driven and and data centric and participate in the information age, right? And if if data is not considered a an asset or or even considered a, a, um, a property, and so that took me down the, the path of thinking about, well, maybe we should just kind of forget about what the accountants and the you know and the insurance companies say about uh, data's 
being value or property. And, uh, it, and I think it's really just incumbent upon organizations to actually treat data as an asset, irrespective of its official designation, not as an asset, right? And uh, so that kind of led me down the road of, of thinking about how to manage and monetize and measure data as an actual asset. So Doug, um, so that begs the question in, in your book, there are three areas that you mentioned, by the way, I have the book right here and it is. I cherish your handwritten note to me as well. <laughs> so I have it on the video as well. There it is. Thank you very much. Um, so you talked about monetizing, managing and measuring information. Right. In a conventional way, I would have thought people will look at first, I need to measure the information. Mm-hmm. And I need to manage my information, then I will think about monetizing. It's a great the point. It starts right off monetizing the information, managing and mm-hmm. measuring. So, this is why you have book reviewers. So I had my whole, uh, a lot of people at Gartner reviewing the book and they said, you know what? The stories, it, you, it's always good to start with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to achieve? Um, and what companies want to achieve is to generate more value from their data, right? Um, or use data in innovative and, and high value ways. And so we decided decided to, uh, I'd actually written the book in, in that order that you mentioned, but we revised it to put the monetization up front to the inspirational stories about how organizations are using data. Um, uh, and then talk through that kind of process of thinking about how to generate new ideas and, and how to implement them. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think it uh, the conceptually, it really starts with with measuring data because you know, there's the old adage that you can't manage what you don't measure, mm-hmm. right? And um, I, I think one of the, my, my hypothesis has been that companies don't really manage their data particularly well, certainly compared to the way they manage their other assets, like their financial assets or their physical assets or even their, their human capital, um, because it's just not something that's, that's measured. And um, I, I think it follows that any asset that you're not m- uh, managing well mm-hmm. or as well as you can is one that you can't generate uh, economic benefits from as well as you as you should be able to so yeah for a lot of companies this is kind of a vicious cycle of not measuring therefore not managing therefore not um, monetizing their data as well as as they could or should and so yes i think it should start with with measuring understanding the quality attributes of data uh, data's impact on business processes, um, even data's cost basis, its market value, its uh, impact on revenue streams and expense savings. These are all things that companies should be measuring uh, about their data. I was just on a call with an insurance company mm-hmm. last hour, and they, you know, they are having trouble uh, prioritizing. They have thousands of data sources that they deal with, and they're having difficulty prioritizing their master data management and data quality and data governance efforts. Um, and their analytic efforts because they just don't know the 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 relative value of these data sources and where to where to focus. So um, yeah, so this is one way that I help organizations by is by helping them measure the various um, value attributes of their their data to help make better decisions and 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 prove the value of data as well. I was going to say it's it's very interesting because since your book has been out, I'm, I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of organizations being able to monetize on on their data programs i mean how far along or you know how much more how much more of a gap is there for organizations to 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 really be mature in in this space yeah i I think monetization is the is has been the big impact 
you know, of, of the book and, and maybe others in the industry who are thinking about um, data, not just as a byproduct, you know, or as something that can be used to generate, you know, pretty pie charts and dashing dashboards, right? But, but actually, as a uh, as a as a fuel for 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 business performance. Um, and so, I'm not the only one, you know, thinking of, uh, about this. But a lot of a lot of organizations, yes, have, have set up data monetization programs. We've seen this in the automobile companies and in in the insurance industry and in pharmaceuticals that I've worked with, where they set up actual programs and, and leaders of data monetization efforts, whose job it is is to, to find new and innovative ways to leverage data assets, um, not only the company's own data assets, but to look externally at third-party data that that might be um, uh, might might prove valuable in in, in certain ways. So um, yeah, there's definitely a concerted effort in in many industries, government as well, to to find more opportunities to leverage leverage data. Yeah. And who are those people in an organization? Are they the chief data mm. officer, or do they right, have right. a different role a title? Yeah, That's typically true. led by a chief data officer. Um, some larger companies have a head of data monetization, or uh, something like that, you know, something of that order. Um, some organizations put um, the onus on their data science organization, which may, may or may not be the, the, the right, you know, way to go about that, but um, it kind of depends on your culture. Um, others put the onus on business leaders themselves. Um, but yeah, I think it, it definitely should be part of the, the chief data officer's remit to not only figure out how to manage data better, but also how to monetize it or, or generate more value from it. So Doug, here's the dilemma though. So it's, it's very widely understood mm -hmm. that in the corporate world, the data-driven insights or decisions depend on a sound data and analytic strategy. So right. that's the best practice, but in practical implementation, we still hear this other statistic that 70% of the data initiatives, data and analytics focused projects fail. Yeah. So th this huge gap, it's not that this strategy is new that we, we need to have. It's been right. there, this concept, but why, why is there such a gap? Yeah, I think, again, I'm not going to, I won't speak to that number itself, but um, failure is one of those, those things that's just dif difficult to put, put your finger on. Um, <clears throat> I, I would say one of the reasons perhaps is that they're not measuring the benefits, right? Of, of a data and analytics program, you know, you can create uh, uh, awesome dashboards and, and great, you know, analytic output, but if people don't use it, you know, then that analytic initiative may be considered a failure. You have a great data warehouse, you've integrated your data, you've cleansed it, you've implemented master data management, you're generating awesome reports that provide tremendous insights, but the business isn't using them. Um, you know, that might be one reason for failure. So. Um, I would say, you know, data literacy and um, and and culture are are probably a big issue for uh, a big reason for data and analytics initiatives failing. Another one is more on the data science side of the equation, mm -hmm. and that is um, a, a lot of analytic initiatives tend to be experimental, as they should be. Um, data science efforts are very much a an R and D kind of effort, and most R and D projects, you know, fail. And, but the idea is you should be failing fast and failing often um, and then finding you know, some, some winning ideas. Um, I think organizations can be a little bit more disciplined about um, identifying potential use cases for data and analytics. Um, and, and so we've set up a process for, for doing that for our clients, but um, 
I, I think just at the end of the day, a lot of data and analytics, especially the exploratory uh, and, and data science kind of stuff is um, is experimental and, and by that nature tends to, to fail, right? I'm sure there are other reasons as well, very you know, technical reasons, uh, technology reasons, people run out of money, mm -hmm. um, new players come in, you know, the half-life of a, of a chief data officer is what, a few years. And so you bring in somebody new and, and he or she might, you know, kind of retool the whole initiative. So um, yeah, there, there's a, a number of reasons uh, for that. I love how you mentioned the data literacy, data culture. I mean, I think those are all um, important aspects, right, of how successful, um, you know, organizations take take data seriously. Um, in yeah. addition to your um, infonomics book, I know another key term that you've uh, coined, and I attribute to you as well in the data management field, is um, the fees. <clears throat> so volume, velocity, and variety, um, again, that's commonly yeah. associated with big data. Um, that was back in 2001. Do you think that in 2020, you know, approaching 2021, those, uh, you know, three Vs still um, hold true today or would you um, add anything new to that? <laughs> well, let's, let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so um, back in the early 2000s, it was kind of in the, uh, well, everybody was thinking about the Y2K issues, right? Um, and, and people started talking about the challenges of, of managing d data. Um, it occurred to me that it wasn't just the size of data that was an issue for organizations. It was, um, it was how fast data was coming at them. Um, you know, certainly as e-commerce started to take off and, and web browsing and, and, and all that, there was a lot of data um, traveling a lot faster than it, than it was before. And that became a challenge for organizations. But then they started incorporating a lot of uh, different um, sources of data from inside the organization and outside the organization. So fitting them together and integrating them in a meaningful way became an issue as well. So that's the, that's the, the variety problem. Um, but they're not only challenges, they're also opportunities for, for organizations. Um, but today I, I think, um, you know, we don't really talk about big data so much anymore because kind of all data is big data. Right. And so, um, but the challenges certainly, certainly persist. I, I think that um, it's been, a lot easier for organizations to solve the volume and uh, velocity problems by scaling infrastructure and 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 dealing with it architecturally. The big problem continues to remain the variety problem that there are so many different data sources. As I just mentioned with this insurance company, thousands of data sources. How do they manage all of that? How do they get a handle on it? How do they know who's using what and when and the value that the data provides or, or perhaps in some cases we've worked with companies where they've determined that uh, certain data sets are, are, are um, underutilized um, to the point where they should probably just dispose of them and are saving millions of dollars a year in unnecessary you know, costs. So, but there are really are no, um, no great, um, I, let's just say, I think there's an opportunity in the, in the vendor uh, marketplace to deal with the variety challenge better than, than we have, right? So you think it's so, a technology, technology can help solve? Yeah, I mean, right now you have to throw a bunch of, uh, of, uh, uh, of data engineers you know, at, a, at a problem and architects and data modelers to determine how to integrate a variety of data sources. You know, I'd like to see the day, and I, I kind of just predicted this, that um, you know, we're gonna see um, self-organizing data. We're gonna see the application of AI and machine yeah. learning in the data management world where 
um, data becomes self-organizing based on um, its, its integrate, potential integration patterns and, and usage patterns. Right, right. On that front, um, Doug, the another thing uh, widely attributed to you, and I've learned a lot, is the types of analytics. You know, descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, oh, yeah. and prescriptive. And now there is a newer, again, like we are three Vs, got expanded to four Vs and five <laughs> right, Vs. Right. And so this four uh, analytics now expanded yeah. to contextual uh, analytics and whatnot, right? So yeah, yeah. what are your thoughts on this fourth, and by the way, so they're extreme, it's a fantastic framework to think about analytics, the progressive yeah. analytics. So right. what is the progression of analytics in the context of AI ML? Right, so like the, the three Vs, others have added, you know, tried to add other Vs just to Veracity. be clever or, or make it their own or whatever. And But what's interesting is when, when folks add other Vs like, um, you know, value or- um, Veracity uh, is Veracity, added. yeah, right, so those are, those are not measures of magnitude. So the three Vs were meant to be measures of magnitude. And yeah, there's lots of other Vs. And in fact, at Gartner, we came up with 12 Vs, right? Oh, of, yeah. of, you know, viscosity and you know, other data management challenges uh, that relate to data, but, but really only the, those three Vs of volume, velocity and variety, you'll deal with magnitude issues and, and uh, therefore applied to, to big data. But yeah, you talk about the, on the analytics side where um, we, we developed kind of this model of thinking about um, how organizations could move more toward higher value analytics. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of companies are, are and, and people are comfortable, again, creating pie charts and bar charts and line charts and maybe doing basic regression analyses. Um, but a lot of that is really just kind of descriptive at what we call descriptive analytics, which, which looks at, you know, what's happening in the business now or what happened, you know, in, in the past. Um, and, and yes, that can be useful and, and particularly it's useful for compliance reporting, but um, the real high value examples, and, and I've, I've collected um, over 500 examples of how organizations are using data and analytics in innovative ways uh, over the years. And um, actually my next book I'm working on is gonna be a, a, co a compilation of, uh, of uh, about a hundred or so of my, my favorite stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I've done a meta, Kind of a, a meta-analysis of these stories certain patterns you know kind of emerged right and what we found is that um, 95 or greater percent of the high value use cases of data and analytics involve diagnostic predictive or prescriptive kinds of solutions not hindsight oriented analytics and simple pie charts but yeah. you know diagnosing a problem understanding fraud or diagnosing equipment failure or predicting equipment failure right um, or um, prescribing um, how something should happen in the business in order to to optimize things um, so that's where the real value proposition is. It's just, as you move up that continuum, the, the skills and the technologies themselves become more, more sophisticated, right. um, and, and arguably a little bit more black box, you know, for, for business people to appreciate and understand. And so it becomes a little bit scary for, for some folks as you move into the, the realm of data science and advanced analytics and scenario planning and, and data mining and text mining and, machine learning and all that is it's um, you know, the value proposition is there. It's just, it's, it's often difficult, difficult to express uh, and to achieve a level of comfort uh, among business people. So again, that's where like Peggy, you mentioned data literacy again, that's where data literacy comes in to help, help business people become more comfortable with these higher forms of analytics. 
So, so Doug, I know you do a, a lot of um, consulting uh, with organizations today. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see um, like a, a gap between organizations that only want to focus on analytics without thinking about their data management program? Or do you, do you combine both as part of your holistic consulting strategy, data strategy for organizations? Um, I, I like to look at it holistically. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be managed separately. But uh, um, when I, um, I, I just um, developed a kind of a, an upgraded um, data and analytics maturity model, you know, so there are a lot of data maturity models out there. Right. I felt it important to include analytics as part of a, a, a maturity model. So we've uh, rolled out a, a new data and analytics maturity model that looks at over 200 kind of distinct best practices within an organization. And so, yeah, from that perspective, we have combined it. So we look at how well organizations are actually deploying data as part of their overall data and analytics strategy. Um, But when it comes to managing data and analytics, I think we can certainly do that separately. I've been an advocate, you know, for a long time of, of separating the IT organization into separate I and T organizations where we're managing data as a separate, um, as a separate entity. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end, uh, at the end of the day, uh, analytic initiatives, you know, can be, can be managed separately from, you know, from the data itself, but obviously they're, they're tightly, tightly coupled. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify, and please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.